Hello, I'm Jean Reith. And I'm Kyle Thompson. And you're listening to General Intellect Unit, and this time we are talking about The Ministry for the Future, a novel written by Kim Stanley Robinson and released in October of 2020. Um, this uh, this book is a really interesting pairing with uh, the peripheral that we read um, last time. Um, this, this is like... It's like the opposite of the jackpot, right? Like um, in in that book, the the jackpot was this like darkly humorous way of referring to the the, the collapse and extinction of most human life and most other life on 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 the on the earth. It's the it's it's the the stars align for the worst possible outcome and the the great black payout at the end of history. In this case, in the Ministry for the Future, the jackpot doesn't really happen, or it barely starts to happen, and then we kind of turn things around in the whole climate catastrophe um, register. Yeah, yeah, it's literally referred to, I believe, as the Great Turn. Um, sort of, there is a there is a section of the book where they are doing like a faux history retrospective on like the twenty thirties. And they refer to it as capital G, capital T, the great turn, um, as opposed to the jackpot, right? Right. Whereas in, in the peripheral timeline, the 2030s are like the beginning of the, the jackpot proper. Um, so, yeah, in, in one case, the stars align for the worst possible outcome. In this in this book, the stars align for a very rosy outcome that has, um, has sort of like Jacobin written all over it, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's really interesting because... Um, the peripheral is written by William Gibson, who is like, you know, a massive lib. Um, <laughs> and then this is written by Kim Stanley Robinson, who is a socialist. Right. Um, uh, and like, you know, this book was directly written as a response to Frederick. Well, it's attributed to Frederick Jameson, the statement, you know, it's easier to imagine the end of world than to imagine the end of capitalism. Um, and so, you know, KSR basically comes in here and he's like, okay, Fred, like, you know, my doctoral supervisor, um, I am going to take up that challenge and I'm going to imagine the end of capitalism. Right. Um, and, and that accompanied obviously by not the end of the world, um, and so he's taking up this this imaginative and intellectual challenge that you could say that Gibson just sort of, um, you know, doesn't even challenge. Like he takes the sort of dismal lib perspective of like, you know, oh, well, we're screwed. Um, uh, but yeah, you get ultimately a story that is kind of West Wing-ish from KSR, uh, whereas Gibson's uh, story, that that first peripheral story in the trilogy that he wrote, um, which apparently is quite dire in the second and, and third books, um, uh, you know, is at least more edgy. Uh, it is it is is kind of Tom Clancy. It's kind of, uh, you know, uh, libs all celebrating the FBI, uh, but it's not the West Wing. Right. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's something I'm very, very mixed on this book because um, it's quite vexing in that um, one of its virtues is that it's this multi perspective 
sort of take on things and it's constantly shifting between um, groups of protagonists and just like also these disembodied voices that just like speak about things. Um, and you get sort of really extreme tonal whiplash, right? Like for in, in one chapter, it's, you know, a meeting at the UN where they're kind of joking like, oh, the world has been saved by bankers. And then the, literally the next chapter is from the ground perspective of like Hong Kong citizens resisting the Chinese state and shit like that. Um, another chapter will be, another chapter just like explains the concept of taxation and then concludes, well, if you change tax law, wouldn't that be a revolution? And then the next chapter after that is just like climate refugees fleeing across a border. It's very whiplashy and dissonant and it's, it's kind of hard to work out precisely what the author's trying to get at. And I guess for me, it's like, um, it's, it seems that like, it's like, from the ministry's perspective, it's this very West Wing kind of thing where like they, they, they think they're saving the world, you know, or they think they're, they think they're a massive contributor to saving the world. Whereas maybe actually it's this like colossal ground up revolutionary force that spread throughout all the world that's actually changing things for the better and the ministry is just a kind of bow on top or or it's actually closer to the way it's presented which is that the ministry is a big force and that the changes in tax policy are what really make the make or make or break the climate crisis it's fucking hard to sift through those different things right yeah because you get statements like, you know, uh, quoting Trotsky saying like, you know, like the party is always trying to catch up with the masses or, uh, you know, having these quotes from like uh, Walter Benjamin or, you know, Frederick Jameson or like like all these Marxists are being cited by these Ministry of the Future people or by like, you know, other government officials. um and like very there's a lot of like very like wink wink nudge nudge like actually this is all marxism stuff um um but at the same time yeah it kind of reads as west wing speak in a way where there's this sort of like post left like oh revolution is so yesterday kind of stuff at the same time that you have like literally uh in one of the chapters referring to like another 1848 happening right like in the mid mid 21st century we have another 1848 um and like how could you possibly get more marxist than like you know talking about the revolution to which the communist manifesto was addressed yeah, right. Like it's um it's like I don't know if it's even maybe the same chapter that mentions 1848, but it also it kind of goes through this again it's so hard to sift through because so many so many of these are disembodied voices or like not really characters and it's hard to know how much the author is throwing his voice um or how much of it is nudge, how much of it is wink or whatever. But like yeah, so 1848, but then also in a very, I think, a page fairly close to that, it's like, well, revolution doesn't happen at the guillotine anymore. It's very all, it's all about these, like, quiet revolutions um, and stuff like, yeah, again, that stuff of, like, well, wouldn't a revolution in tax policy really revolutionize the world? And it's it's very, it's also very, like, I guess, like, national realist sort of stuff where it's the, the state is eternal. And, like, okay, pe like, it's ultimately people power. Like, you know, it's, um, you know, the, the party's trying to catch up with the people. 
but the state and the party are still kind of the primary agents in that, like, they're responding to... It's not that the people revolutionize society, it's that there's unrest, in quotes, and then the state decides to change tax policy, and that's what saves the climate, you know? That's kind of... So it's it's very sub-Lasallian sort of perspective that seems to be all the way through this. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think... Um... It's a very weird take on the state where the state doesn't wither away. It's still like state power actually increases in res- like in 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 uh, sort of uh, contravention of neoliberalism. Um, but at the same time, it states become much less self-interested, more multilateral. Um, you know, the, 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 the entire border system is essentially given a jubilee or an abolishment. Um, the, uh, all the world's central banks, uh, collaborate as essentially like one entity. Um, it is like, there, there's sort of a chapter where they talk about like the Bretton Woods conference um, as an inspiration for this. But then it's like an empire, like a, a, a sort of imperial organization of the world banking system without an imperial hegemon. Um, like so a very sort of weird state outcome or theory of the state that is expressed in the book. And then all of that is like accompanied by, um, you know, you're saying how it's like, you know, no guillotines, et cetera, et cetera, excuse me, et cetera, et cetera. But like at the same time, you also have like widespread um, economic warfare of like shooting down planes, like uh, cargo planes and passenger planes, um, and destroying the world shipping infrastructure in order to prevent carbon emissions from happening. Um, and it's not like the book does not, um, wholeheartedly embrace that, uh, that violent uh, approach but it also does not reject it either right yeah i mean even the the sort of very direct sort of form of like the assassination of like uh, fossil fuel executives because it it turns out there's only about three or four hundred of those motherfuckers and you you kind of can kill all of them (laughs) yeah it 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 presents i forget exactly where it is at the book but i remember this from the audiobook it sort of says that like you know um the global ruling elite uh, is not like a durable backstop for the existing system of petro capitalism because they're so small numerically. It's easy enough to just kill mm-hmm. them off. Yeah, it's like that. Ol- oligarchies are brittle. Is is what they're saying. Or olig- oligarchies are brittle because they're so numerically few, right? Like, even though there are so many guns pointed at the masses, like is discussed in one of the chapters, like, yeah, you can just take these fuckers out, right? Um, mm-hmm. And that's in contrast to the, um, like, emerging, robust, like, multidimensional, mul- com- complex system that emerges into world governance. 
that that's that's just so much more robust and like cybernetically valid compared to the petrostates. Yeah, and then we have um, the Ministry for the Future has like a black ops wing that is thoroughly infiltrated by this uh, Kali group uh, that uh, of uh, sort of like um, direct action uh, politics that comes out of the um, the inciting event of the whole story, which is this. Uh, World War One scale uh, casualties disaster that happens in India of a heat wave just killing off untold millions of people, right? It's like twenty million dead or something along those lines. Or um, let's let's talk about that opening chapter for a bit because like that was an extremely strong opening chapter. I I think it's it's almost like oh my god, it's 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 so real and 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 harrowing like to i i first encountered this book as an audiobook and i listened through that chapter and oh it was it's just horrific and it's so it's so believable it's so imaginable like you can picture yourself there especially when i went through the heat dome the following summer after I read this book or listened to this book. Oh, no, sorry. I had the other way around. I went through the heat dome and then I listened to this book. And it was like that that sense of having been in this heat dome and nowhere within like 300 kilometers could I escape the heat no matter where I went, right? If, if I wasn't in an air-conditioned situation or some kind of cooling I could not travel by car anywhere to get away from the heat. Even the mountains were just unbelievably hot. And 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 then going and listening to this first chapter, it was like I could picture myself in that situation of just there's no way out. Everyone is going to die. Everyone is going to die and there's no way to escape it. Yeah, I, I think I had I, I had it the other way around, where like um, it was that this year we had um, heat waves. I mean, like they, they weren't they weren't weren't as severe as the heat dome you're describing, but like that experience of being where we, we were, my family was like lying on the grass out the back at like half past ten at night, with like the sky is still perfectly blue and like it's still hot as fucking hell out there, and we're just kind of I'm just lying there thinking this reminds me a bit fucking too much of um, in a smaller scale, but it reminds me a bit too much of that chapter um but it's it's an absolutely incredible fucking opening right like i think it's on it's on par with like the clashes london calling in that it it conclusively blows its load in the first fucking couple of minutes and then the rest of the book cannot catch up with what it's just done you know yeah well it, it it's it's like as a short story it's so powerful right like it reminds me a lot of like reading camus the plague or something like that Right. Like it is it's so, so powerful. And then that is the emotional core that has to carry the rest of the book. Mm -hmm. And there's there's a lot of book to carry, unfortunately. Like that is where the motivation is coming from. And that's why you have this character, Frank, um, who is the sole survivor 
of this, you know, uh, of, of this entire city that dies off. And he's like, you know, often described as sort of like somebody who is between life and death or who is like an alien or is somebody who is like undead, you know, mm-hmm. just he, he's hollowed. He's hollowed. He, yeah, exactly. Like he he tries to take like all these different approaches to treating PTSD, but nothing works. And the only thing he can do is try to do activism to deal with his crushing survivor's guilt and just the the PTSD and the physical like imprint or trace that this horrific event has left upon him, right? And so that carries forward this event into the rest of the narrative. But then you are sort of left with Frank's limited ability as an individual to really affect the world very much. Um, Especially somebody who is so thoroughly traumatized, right? So like, even though there is that continuity from this inciting event through the, to the rest of the story, it's not exactly continuous or it's not a continuity on a scale that matches the world events that are happening or the the action of the plot that is going on, right? Yeah, absolutely right. And um, for, the, for the listeners who maybe haven't read the book, like the, this opening chapter is, is like um, this character, Frank May, is um, he's like an aid worker or something running a clinic somewhere in India. And it's, it, it follows him for a couple of days dealing with this heat wave that just gets worse and worse and worse. Um, and, you know, goes, goes from, keeps going from bad to worse, like people are dropping like flies all around them. Um, then towards the end, they sort of like, it, it, it's this really harrowing thing of like, you know, pe- people deciding, do we get into the lake or not? Because like, the lake is cooler than the air, but it is definitely fucking hotter than you can survive. Um, like, you will cook in the lake, but you'll cook faster in the air. So Frank is sitting in the lake with his face barely above the water, blacks out for a couple of hours, wakes up and realizes all the children are dead, um, blacks out for another couple of hours, wakes up and realizes everyone is dead. And then the last thing he sees is the trees across the wave spontaneously combusting in the heat. And then he passes out. Later, he'll be recovered somehow from this fucking situation and basically cooked alive, but actually still alive compared to fucking everyone else in the region. Um, the sole survivor of that, of that entire, entire episode. So like the, and then there's then this rapid sort of, um, whiplash shift to the perspective of the UN, you know, who are like doing this big meeting and like commiserating over like, oh yeah, I mean, sure. You know, 20 million just died in India, but like, eh, what are you going to do with this kind of shit? Um, yeah, it's like that old the old Stalin quote about, you know, like 20 people dying is a tragedy, 20 million dying is a statistic or you know, whatever whatever the actual quote is, but you know, that's that's the the, the essence of the problem, right? The uh, representative from India is is saying, "Well, we're going to we're going to go ahead and start doing geoengineering. We're going to start spraying shit into the skies to cool things down." Um, there's nothing you can do to stop us. Go fuck yourselves. Um, and that pivots us into, it, it's it, like you were saying, right? Like Frank has so limited agency in this, but then we pivot into this agency that has a lot of agency. Um, a department of the UN that's like colloquially known as the Ministry for the Future, because it's it's something that's been set up in response to like, the, well, in, in response to the abject failure of the um, Paris Climate Accords. 
uh, so far. And their, their sort of weird charge is that they're there to represent the future, represent future generations and argue on behalf of, like, actually solving this shit, on the, like, for the sake of, of the future. Yeah, and unlike most UN um, agencies, they actually have a budget. Mm-hmm. They have teeth, which is which is that's the most implausible aspect of any of this is that the UN has teeth. Um. Well, I mean, they they don't exactly have teeth, but they do have some money, right? Like at the start of this, they they don't they don't really have any enforcement power, but they're not chronically underfunded, right? They have some money and they have some limited political capital, which is kind of where it begins with um, the the leader of this group, Mary Murphy, and her entourage, basically, trying to figure out what, how can you start to move the needle on this? Um, they're entertaining a couple of different sort of things, right? Like, um, one of the obvious ones that I think, like, these are actually really interesting sort of little proposals, because one of the one of the sort of, like, cheap wins they go after initially is... Um, we're going to go up to we're going to go to Antarctica and get some drill holes down to the bottom of the glaciers to suck up the water to like stop them from sliding because um, like currently they're they're sitting on a bed of meltwater and of course the more they move the more friction there is the more water melts their increase like decreases friction allows it to move further that can like bad uh, feedback loop but if you just pump the water out of there, you can just slow those motherfuckers down, and the, the, like the, the glaciers will sit back down onto the rock. Yeah, you're basically removing the lubricant that is allowing the glaciers to slide off into the ocean. Yeah, and this this introduces us to like a lot of the form of solidly half of the book by volume, which is kind of back and forth, like um, you know, conference call arguments about like the feasibility of these kinds of projects. You know. Um, um, so that's one thing they kind of go after. And then the other big sort of project is like a carbon coin. Like they're going to do a Bitcoin scam that um, like actually actually does this stuff. So that like it'll be a digital currency that gets... It, it's, it's, a weird, it's a weird thing because um, although it is called carbon coin, there's nothing remotely blockchain-y about it. It's Isn't actually there? just a... F- Did I miss No, like... No, because like it's... it's um, it is uh, so the chapter in which is first mentioned. It starts off with uh, you know Mary's tech guy being like talking about like red plenty stuff, like we've covered on the show, right? So essentially, you know, um, using uh, computers to do non-market uh, resource allocation, um, and Mary's like you know, basically making jerk off motions um, and like, you know, this bores me, like, I don't care. And then uh, the tech guy pivots to like carbon coin, right? And that sort of implies because it's called a coin and because it's mentioned by the tech guy immediately after the Red Plenty stuff, um, that there is some kind of blockchain shit going on. But as far as I can tell, this is actually just a very regular ass, like financial instrument that is being produced by central banks. And it has no like smart contracts. It has no um, there's no mining. There's no blockchain. It is just it's just bonds. That's all it is with with like a really fancy um economic 
taxation and enforcement uh, set up around it. To, to the extent that there is anything uh, digital, it's just that they bring in a more rigorous, uh, like transparent monetary regime that can be digitally tracked to avoid tax evasion. Um, but there is no blockchain element to any of this, um, even though it's sort of like has lots of those connotations of being sort of gee whiz. I think I was getting mixed up with the the thing that comes a bit later, the um, the sort of Facebook replacement, like the your lock or whatever it is, that, that also develops some financial instruments hanging off the side of it. Like it's um, that seems to be blockchain based, but that, you're quite right. That doesn't seem to be related to the carbon coin, which is a very it's a central bank trick to say like we're gonna pay you to not pollute like to to not burn up and release co2 or or to sequester it like you'll you'll get paid for either of those activities so either leave that shit in the ground or put it in the ground and then you'll get a carbon coin yeah it's it's essentially like carbon credits but there is a guaranteed uh floor for the value of the carbon coin um, that is set up by the central banks of the world so that um, it can never crash as long as all the central banks in the world don't crash, which means that it is a guaranteed payoff as long as you fulfill the requirements for purchasing it, which is to either forego um, burning carbon somehow uh or to sequester carbon somehow so like there's the the there is the verification and enforcement side of it that is tied to a guaranteed payoff in the future um yeah that that's that's what it is and so mary's job initially well a lot of it is just chasing down the central bank people to try and pitch this idea and like that that develops slowly over the course of the book and like um there's moments of economic chaos that like you know where it's a bit easier to convince the central bank people to go all in on a stabilizing sort of regime like this. Yeah, because you have things like um, what it... Uh, so we have here in the, the minutes from one of the meetings of the Ministry of, for the Future uh, in uh, Chapter 15, um, there's a statement, uh, insurance companies in a panic at last year's reports pay out at about 100 billion USD a year now, going higher fast, as in a hockey stick graph. Insurance companies insured by reinsurance, these now holding short end of stick, or the tall end of the stick, can't charge premiums high enough to cover payouts, nor could anyone afford to pay that much. Lack of predictability means reinsurance companies simply refusing to cover environmental catastrophes uh, the way they uh, the way they don't ensure war or political unrest, etc. So end of insurance, basically. Everyone hanging out there uninsured. Governments therefore payer of last resort, but most governments already deep in debt to finance, meaning also reinsurance companies. Nothing left to give without endangering belief in money. Entire system therefore on brink of collapse. Um, so essentially, because there is no future in financial terms, 
there is no possibility of futures trading and there is no possibility of reliable money because nothing can be backstopped by anything. Um, and so when you end up in a situation like that, there is a little bit more um, acceptance by the central banks to uh, re um, stabilize the system by creating something like this carbon coin where it's like, okay, you know, essentially we have this future scenario where carbon reduction happens and we're going to guarantee that this happens by guaranteeing payouts in the future. And because that exists, then the, a future exists in which an economy could exist and therefore the system is stabilized. So that's where there's sort of a marriage between the mandates of the central banks to create financial stability and um, the requirement that there be a future without unending climate catastrophe. Yeah, right. Like it's it's a very like system four, system five reconfiguration of policy and like future direction stuff. And it's basically declaring what in in part declaring what socially necessary labor looks like from now on. Like this this is the shit we want. You know, that this we've set the policy dial to here. Go do your stuff um, is the message to the various subcomponents. Um, the other perspective, then, and it's it, again these these chapters alternate in perspective all over the place. But the other perspective is um, bottom up struggle. Like that, like India has a agri communist revolution basically um, that goes partially unremarked upon in the book. Like it's it's remarked upon once, basically, um, which is pretty fucking weird. Yeah, I have a I have it here. Um... It's, it's, I have a short little summary of what happens because we really only get like a short summary. It's um, so it's uh, you know, the, the, the scenario uh, more people had died in this heat wave than in the entirety of the first world war and all in a single week and in a single region of the world. The stain of such a crime would never go away, it would remain forever. And so that's the setup, and then you get um. You know the what what the Indians are faced with. It says they're told to tighten the belt and embrace austerity and be the working class for the bourgeoisie of the developed world and suffer in silence until better times came. But the better times w could never come. The plan was shot, um, and then we get the outcome. A new party was voted in. A composite party composed of all kinds of Indians, every religion and caste, urban poor, rural poor, the educated, all banded together by the disaster and determined to make something change. The ruling elite lost legitimacy and hegemony, and the incohate fractured resistance of victims coalesced in a party called Avashtana, Sanskrit for survival. And my only note there is... This is probably what the book should have been about. Yeah, absolutely, right? <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, that's the kind of decisive moving point in history. And the Ministry for the Future is like the policy implementation results six steps down the line from that revolutionary moment. Yeah, 
Absolutely right. Um, but the, the way the book is presented, it's, it would be so easy for, you know, a West Wing fan to just read the book and take the West Wing message from the whole thing, because that's, that's the message that's foregrounded so much. Like, the, the underpinnings of it are kind of put into the shadows a lot. And the, the, other, the other side of the political revolution is the um, emergence of the, the Kali group, like the children, children of Kali, just doing direct action like eco-terrorism, basically. Um, th- there's a couple of these that are described in quite de- decent detail. Like, so they just, like, start assassinating um, uh, carbon or, like, fossil fuel CEOs or whatever. Yeah, they, you know, Robinson sort of makes this point that, like, the global ruling elite um, you know, the sort of uh, proverbial six guys who could all fit in a minivan and own half the world, uh, plus their hangers on, um, is numerically very small. And therefore, the oligarchy is quite fragile because they're so vulnerable to assassination, sort of like what we saw um uh, in the lead up to the French Revolution, right, with direct action assassination of of Russian um, elites, uh, princes, and 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 other nobles and ministers and and emperor, sorry, czars and and so on, right? Um, they just go and start picking them off as like you know, as long as you don't implement climate policy, we're just going to keep killing you. Um, and then they, of course, do that with the. Uh, the the freight infrastructure around the world too right like they 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 torpedo container ships um, until they will electrify their fleet uh, and same with um, airplanes right there's a day like um there's a day where like a shitload of air airplanes just come out of the sky and like attacked by drones from random yeah I think it's called like crash day or something like that yeah and so it's like it's this very clear message and basically like it, it's sort of like um. <sighs> It, it sort of takes down the commercial airline industry or, and just, like, eliminates a huge amount of, like, the carbon dioxide and, like, greenhouse gases that are going into the air because people just stop flying because, like, you know, flying only makes sense if it's basically safe. I mean, you know, airplanes go down sometimes, but when when the odds of it going down just escalate that much and it's like, okay, the, the drones that took them down are untraceable, it's a distributed network anyway, so, like, they, they, they're able to insist on this and keep insisting... You just don't book those tickets anymore, you know. Um, yeah, it, it's it's similar to the um, you know this is ancient history now, but in, in the aftermath of nine eleven, uh, when when people were just scared to fly, right? Um, because they didn't know, you know, like I I was never that scared. Like I flew quite shortly after nine eleven to Hawaii, and it was like, hey, cheap flights, sweet, but. You know, um, <laughs> uh, also nobody's going to blow up Hawaii, you know? Yeah, exactly. Like who's going to, who's going to blow up a flight to Hawaii. Right. Um, this was just shortly after the, the, the famous, uh, the famous shoe bomber incident, um, that made us, uh, take off our shoes at the security checkpoint for the next 30 years. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, oh my God, it's, it's so stupid. Anyway, um, you know, uh, yeah, but people people honestly were not flying. And I remember in the in the the the, the first or second day after nine eleven, there was this irrational paranoia in my mind. Like, you know, what if someone flew a plane into my podunk town in the middle of British Columbia? You know, the hinterland. Like, what what, what would they target? What would they do? Right? Like, even though it's completely irrational. 
the, the thought was in my mind. But if there if, if there was a rational expectation that, you know, you had like a one in 20 chance or higher of your plane being shot down if you went on a commercial passenger flight, the whole airline industry would shut down immediately. Right. Um, it's it's kind of similar to those people uh, who were doing direct action by uh, going around and slashing uh, the tires of SUVs everywhere um, just to create a deterrent or an expectation in people's minds that uh, if I buy a gas guzzling vehicle, I can expect to get my tires slashed on the regular. Like it didn't work because it wasn't, you know, extensive or intensive enough, but um, it's the same sort of thinking, right? Um, it is, yeah. But the big difference here is that like um, one of the big enabling technologies here is is drones, right? Like so you can fly clusters of micro drones into the face of an airplane and take it down. You can also do like this one actually struck me as really interesting kind of um, in that like they, the, the children of Kali um, take down the meat industry basically by um, randomly infecting herds with BSE. Um, and they just they just use drones to just drop infected material into these into these herds, and you can't tell who's infected where, when, or why, and how. You just don't trust meat anymore, and and it's it's so distributed, and the drones are so fucking cheap. You can't even if you catch the drone, you can't trace it or where the fuck it came from. Um, and if even if you do catch one of them, there's a fucking million other ones, you know. Um, the and th this works in a bunch of different ways. Like there's there's another bit where like. The U.S. starts using its, um, or I guess a lot of militaries start using their aircraft carriers to assist with the operations in Antarctica because the aircraft carriers are fucking useless now because modern drone technology can blow up an aircraft carrier easily. And it's something the mil military can't quite admit to, but is quietly acknowledged. And it's just this, this redeplo redeployment. Like, it, it seems like the, the general theme there is the reconfiguration and redeployment by just shifting, shifting incentives and shifting the balance of things. Um, and then, and then, like Mary and her crew actually remark on this. It's like, hey, look, we were trying to like get the carbon burn of airlines and meat down, and then these fucking Cali dudes just did it. <laughs> we had nothing to do with it, you know. Well, nothing to do with it, you know, in quotes, because it turns out that the black wing of the ministry is real is related to the Cali um, operation. Yes, yes, that's right. The Ministry for the Future's Black Op wing um, is is closely related with them. Um, the The children of Kali also uh, do a hostage taking at the Davos summit, mm, that's really uh, where chapter. they try to do <laughs> they try to do like a reeducation camp for Davos uh, assholes. Um, and it, it, it's it's written from the perspective of a Davos asshole who's all like very sort of like I'm so over this like very blasé about the whole thing, um, um, but it, you know it sort of describes them like you know trying to like inculcate like a an Earth centric con consciousness among the hostages and like show the extent of the problems blah 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 it doesn't work at all. But um, it is a it, it, it's 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 very reminiscent of like the sorts of hostage takings you saw in the 70s by guerrilla groups. Um, 
Like, I remember this one story was like, um, I don't remember who it was, but there was like a famous uh, F1 driver, I think, who was taken uh, hostage by leftist gorillas while he was just out driving, <laughs> like on a race. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and and they, they they like tried to like do like a re-education for him and like and he, and he was like you know like listen man like I, I'm not political I'm just a race car <laughs> driver etc etc and I don't think it really worked but you know it's a very sort of similar story very uh, nice. that, yeah. that we get here yeah yeah um so there's all that bottom up force really that's like and and then the the general sort of like there's a lot of general talk of like unrest, you know, like there's there's a lot of unrest and stuff. But then it, the unrest seems to get piped back through the state system and turned into, you know, the demands are met, that kind of stuff. It's a very, um, yeah, I don't know. It's a very state centric sort of way of processing that kind of unrest. Well, it's because like you have like a people's government in India and then that government can sort of like take this, you know, um, carbon coin, like, like let's create a discount rate that is uh, protective of seven generations into the future, and then like sort of like spread that through the the echelons of of the global technocracy, and then you know, and then it gets implemented as policy, right? It's like. You know, all the heavy lifting is sort of done by this revolutionary government in India that um, we don't really see any of. We see some, it's, it's never quite as much, right? But like, like it, so conspicuously, like, I mean, Mary is located in Zurich, like, and because that's where this shit is headquartered. But like, li over these couple of decades, life in Zurich doesn't change at all, really, you know, aside from a couple of, like, there's there's no indication that status quo really changes. But then we do get some chapters, like, talking about, like, um, economic chaos caused by student loan strikes. And that snowballs into a mortgage strike and all this kind of stuff. And then that snowballs into the, the banks collapsing and all this kind of shit. But then... There's very little, ev like, India is the only place you see evidence of real social transformation. You don't really see the evidence anywhere else. Um, yeah, and to the extent that these things are described, they're, they're always described um, in the third person as sort of like news dispatches or as characters uh, um, paraphrasing what happened, right? Um, it's never firsthand except I think in that case of the um, uh, of the uh, Hong Kong protesters that you mentioned right yeah that's that's a rare exception because um, otherwise it's it's references to you know there's there's a new Tiananmen Square basically where like millions of people occupy the center of Beijing and and so on but then then it's it's very hard to see the evidence as such of like because like while reading the book, you get the impression that, like, there's this, like, basically communist revolution across the entire world. But then by the end, you're left with this distinct impression that, you know, the nation state is still there. The wage relation is still there. Capital is still basically there in a, very, in a different form. What, what about it is a revolution exactly, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of like you get, um, you know, the implementation of, uh, like in some way, it's not really described how, but like, uh, 
you have this um, communist government in Kerala, which is, of course, a real thing, um, which kind of forms the seed for the revolutionary government in India. And they engage in this kind of like um, earth first communism, right? Not not the grouper first, but just you know, like permaculture. Like, that's their orientation, yeah. right? Yeah, eco communism. Yeah, um, and then that is sort of a seed for other places, and then we have like MMT's job guarantee being brought in, which sort of attenuates the pressure of the reserve army of the unemployed, right? Although it doesn't remove the wage relation as such. And then you have the implementation of the carbon coin where um, the market isn't exactly in charge of capital allocation anymore because everything is framed in terms of this carbon backstop that is enforced by the state. Um, so like the, the market doesn't allocate to whatever is most profitable or rather it does, but the profit incentives are distorted by the state system and the central banking system. Right. Did you notice that throughout the, throughout the book, like there's, there's often you get these um, disembodied heads kind of talking about like things like markets and then like, they'll just say like, Oh, but the market isn't a market anyway or whatever. It's just very dismissive of like the critique of markets, you know? And it's, it's, it, 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 there's always a clever sidestep around this. Cause like, if, if you point out that, like, if you, if you have markets, it implies all this other kind of shit that like is going to jam up your attempts to solve these problems. Then there's always an answer like, yeah, but yeah, but markets aren't really markets anyway. You know, it's, 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 uh, yeah, we're post, we're post market, like, you know, sort of like the capitalism, communism dichotomy is so 20th century, like, you know, uh, like maybe you could call this communism, but like, does it even matter if we call it that or not? Like, um, there's a lot of that sort of stuff going on. Um, and again, it's very hard to know how much he's throwing his voice there versus like, is that is that sincerely what he's getting at? Hard to know. Yeah, and then we have like, um, you know, sort of the vague mention of like red plenty cybernetic planning stuff but never in like any kind of thorough discussion like it's it's thrown out there once or twice and i was like oh okay is this somehow like related to the carbon coin thing but it's not actually it's like it's kind of like discussed as sort of like a step further than the carbon coin that some countries might go into i, I kind of took it that it's basically like the way it's sort of presented is that, like, if that's happening, it's a sort of market consciousness that's emerged to be the geist of history or whatever, you know? Like, yes and no, because, like, it's really weird because you get that initial discussion of the Red Plenty idea, but what it is described as is, like, an evolution of um, automated trading, Right. Which is not really what that is in any meaningful sense. Like, like the 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 connection between using deep learning AI stuff for like you know microsecond based trading to the red plenty scenario 
of like cybernetic um, planning is is like you know they have a they sort of have like a tiny Venn diagram overlap, but they're not really synonymous in any meaningful sense. Silicon is is the shared element, right? And yet it's kind of presented as though they are in this book. Yeah, totally right. That's that's the weird part of it, right? Like, um, it's it's sort of it's sort of telling a story of this like convergence of just all, all of these various bits, like tax policy, market forces. Uh, Mondragon, Mondragon comes in there, right? So you get you get um, uh, cooperatives, um, a cooperative economy uh, growing. Yeah, and you've you've got all that sort of stuff just converges on a sort of quasi utopia somehow. Um, it's 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 vexing actually but all that being said like you say zurich doesn't change much at all you know all these jokes about banks bringing about communism it still exist and then we have this thing where uh at the end of the book um mary is like taking stock of her career sort of like you know doing her internal memoir of, you know, what did we accomplish in this sort of, I don't know, half century of effort, right? Like, what is it, like 40 years or something like that, right? Um, 30, 40 years. And she describes how, like, essentially no meaningful progress has been made in terms of gender equality between, uh, I think it's described in terms of men and women, right? Like it, it is a, it's like a gender binary description. I think it's not like a, you know, non-binary sort of, um, uh, like poly gender or like sort of post gender perspective. Um, it's, it's about the oppression of women and, and, um, and it's, it's just like, you know, nothing's really changed there. And that was sort of the thing that I came away from this, story like feeling was one of the biggest blocks to its plausibility as a scenario because like I just don't see it it's not that I find it like it's not that I find it morally reprehensible for Robinson to try to inject some plausibility into this scenario by sort of describing a devil's bargain that has been made where you know we get the ecological consciousness we get the economic reorganization, et cetera, et cetera. But we had to make a deal with the patriarchy to maintain, you know, wage inequality and all this other stuff around the world. Um, You know, suppressing women's power around the world. When in fact, like you look at sort of the, quotidian lived reality of petrocapitalism and it's so deeply entrenched with like misogyny and this kind of like toxic masculinity that like I don't see how you ever get to any of those things without addressing the patriarchy and the system of gender oppression because like you know, it's similar to like uh, how toxic masculinity was such an obstacle to doing anything with um, COVID, right? Um, 
like any kind of coordinated action to protect life seems to immediately run into like the mask death cult um, or the mask Petro death cult. Uh, and and like to say, oh, this just is a thing that we'll have to deal with after the revolution. It seems like completely implausible to me. Yeah, that, I mean that that's where the implausibility is. It's it's it is uh, the notion that you know these broads would be asked to just wait at the back of the line for their turn. That's very plausible. But the notion the notion that it would succeed as a strategy is fucking utter, utterly implausible. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's, it, that's, that's, um, it's a weird fucking element of the back of the book there. Um, it's, it's definitely one of those things where it's, it it reminds me kind of like how in say like, um, you know, Game of Thrones, you can say like, oh, this is like dark fantasy or this is realistic because there are a lot of, uh, female characters who get raped in the story. Right. Like that's sort of like I'm going to add, quote unquote, realism by this, like to this story by uh, enshrining violence against women or misogyny. It's kind of cheap, honestly. It is. Yeah. Funny, funny how that's always the fallback. You know, it's just funny how that it's funny how that's always the fallback. You know, it's like just just funny how that works out. You know, Um, interesting how that works out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, you know, um it's also a case where, um, yeah, I, I, sorry. I, I just, I just don't, I just don't see it happening. Um, and, uh, you know, I can see this idea of the, the devil's bargain being necessary for the revolution because like, it reminds me of like when I play like, um, you know, Sims, like, uh, democracy three or four or like uh um what's that really good one uh suzerain right like where you'll make a deal with the law and order agenda to uh to advance uh communism because the people who want law and order will bandwagon with you even though they're not actually a part of your core voting block right like that kind of thing i can understand but to place that sort of deal with the devil um, element around misogyny, it just seems like very like it seems like a complete misread of what the situation is on a day to day basis of why we have this death cult mentality and why it is so hard to move. It, it it seems like a colossal blind spot on the author's part, right? That like, because also like, it's it's not narratively necessary in the slightest, especially in a narrative where he's trying to paint the rosiest possible picture of avoiding the jackpot. Because like, it would be the easiest thing for him to just say at the end, oh, also we sorted out the patriarchy. Well, you get, for example, here New York, uh, sorry, Bill McKibben, uh, writing in the New York Review of Books. The book is. Uh, not utopian, it's anti-dystopian realist to its core, right? Like these are the kinds of reviews you get because you put those kinds of qualifiers of like, quote unquote, like critical utopia into your utopian scenario. And then you get people like Barack Obama endorsing the book, right? Because he did that and it was like sold with his endorsement 
on the front cover, like one of Barack Obama's top books of 2020, right? Yeah, right. And it, it's just really weird to see all these chapters where, you know, it, it, it's just this fucking like victory lap parade of like all the shit that went well, you know, like we're doing, we're doing permaculture, we're doing fucking indigenous led knowledge um, practices, we're doing all these kind of things. But, you know, not stepping on the necks of women is, is absent from that list of successes, fucking weird right really fucking weird and not not narratively necessary in the slightest i don't know very fucking strange um and it would be the easiest thing to just slide it in there at the end it's like oh also by the way we sorted this out well and and, and it's a thing where like you have um you know it's it's sort of inserted in there to say like the tasks of the revolution are infinite Right. Like there, there, you know, there's 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 always new demands. There's always new things that need to be addressed. So it doesn't seem like, well, we did the thing. Now history is over. Blah, blah, blah. Right. Like there's that level of plausibility that he's trying to inject into the scenario. Um, but, yeah, fundamentally fails on the on, on, on the the idea of the ministry ever getting this far with that agenda. Then we also have in the story this um, invocation of Kali as um, the um, sort of patron deity behind this direct action movement. Um, And yet at the same time that that happens, you don't have that accompanied by a dismantling of the patriarchy. So it's like, you know, I'm not saying that couldn't happen. Like that is plausible, right? But it is a bit weird to put that goddess worship at the center of the story. And then at the same time, say that like women haven't really made progress in this century. And I, I understand that like the, the sort of typical leftist Western reading of the Kali story or of the Kali, um, of Kali worship is often like quite inaccurate to the way that Kali is perceived within Vedic religions. But that being said, like you would expect kind of like right, goddess worship goes with mass direct action, goes with probably some progress for women. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> um it, it's just very funny in that, like, it's it's kind of fractal in a self, in an unself-aware kind of way, because, like, you know, the, the problem is that, like, women are still oppressed, right? They're still meant, made to wait at the back of the queue or whatever. Um, but that's precisely what the author is doing, right? Like, it's just fucking, like, replicating the exact problem that's um, that's being put there. And I also just, I, I kind of noticed there's, there's been recent discourse about, like, how you know, the left in, in quotes or whatever, like as a general thing, or like specific leftist organizations are often still really fucking bad at like gender stuff. Oh, sure. In a, in a way that makes you, way that makes you feel like we just really haven't made any fucking progress in half a century. Um, and then to have that, that kind of echo back here again, is like, well, we just haven't made any progress in a half a century. It's like, yeah, I don't know. It, it tracks, you know, it's. I mean, like, yeah, like, you know, Mary herself says like, well, okay, I mean, we're kind of up against the entirety of human history here in terms of dismantling the patriarchy. And yet, you know, I I feel like more so than many periods in history, that 
project is at least something that would be discussed in terms of revolutionary change, if not actualized, right? Yeah, right. Um, well, especially when there's so, there's so much evidence of like you know revolutionary movements. In, in history that have, you know, prioritized liberation of women. I mean, even just, like, the position of women in the USSR was substantially fucking better. Um, like, it's 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 not, it's not like nobody's... It's not like nobody's ever said women hold up half the sky or some shit like that. You know, it's like... It's, it's not a fucking novel concept, but, like, somehow this revolution happens and that, that one aspect is fucking missing, absent in its entirety. It's really suspicious and weird, <laughs> you know? Like if some Cam- if some Cambodian villagers can make progress on fucking feminism, you know, with, with their revolutionary movement, why the fuck can't the Ministry for the Future and all these fucking people do the same? It's it's really strange that that's not possible, you know. Yeah, 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 and and I I, I mean I think um, it's it's also a very shallow description of it because you don't have things like oh and then the turfs like screwed us or something like that, you know, like. <laughs> Like, there, there's no dynamics to it. It's just, oh, yeah, that didn't happen. No, yeah. It's just, that, that's that's not even, like, that, that. that's that's so far from being possibly on screen. It's, um, yeah, I don't know. It's 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 bizarre. Um, uh, like, I don't know. There's a huge volume of this book that's, like, not terribly remarkable. Like, there's things, things to happen. Like, you know, Frank um, abducts Mary and harangues her about, like, that the, the ministry isn't doing enough and then they eventually become friends and all this kind of weird shit. But there's, it's just, it's it's stretched out over so, such colossal gulfs of fucking prose that it's it's really hard to keep on top of any of it. And I, I kind of think that the, the interpersonal storytelling just isn't that interesting either. Um, yeah, it's kind of like, um, you get these these two vectors of influence on Mary. The one is uh, Frank having been through this disaster, um, you know, kidnapping her in this kind of like poorly thought through kidnapping attempt that is just like, you know, I just like I want to tell you like how urgent this is and how much you're fucking it up, right? Like, why aren't you doing more? Like, why are you complacent, right? Um, that's one vector of influence. And then you also have the vector of influence of like people in the ministry from India who work with Mary and uh, influence her in that way. Or like just people who are like familiar with what's going on in India. Um, and And so it's describing kind of the dissemination of ideas. There is this sort of plot about, you know, people trying to assassinate Mary, um, her avoiding that with the help of the Swiss police. Um, You know, it's kind of, it's what makes it a novel and it's not terrible, but it isn't fire either. You know, it's kind of like, well, you also have the story of Frank, right? Where it's like, you know, Frank is trying to get over his PTSD. He's a fugitive within Zurich. He gets into a relationship with one of these climate refugees and sort of becomes a a, a stepfather. But then he has to go to ground and escape. And then it's like he's going to die. And then Mary is like there and, and his ex-partner is there to sort of like see him off so that like there's some kind of 
witnessing or vigil of the death of this man who is sort of like outside of the human race and outside of time um, that provides some kind of like, you know, the actions of the ministry are honoring the truth of the victims, uh, you know, resonance there. But it isn't it isn't like the best novel prose you'll ever read compared to that first section, which is just like absolutely harrowing. It strikes you to your core. It is like, you know, so powerful. And then the rest of that is like, you know, providing a sort of personal dimension to this broader uh, scenario in a very kind of like common way to what happens in utopian novels, right? Yeah, right, totally. And like, I find a lot of the narrative stuff is just kind of, it's it's just too long as well. Like this, it's just like page after page of like, Mary Mary walked around Zurich. Zurich's really pretty, um, this kind of shit. And then, um, but then like the, the non-narrative parts of it can drag as well, where there's, there's just a whole chapter that's like, it just explains the concept of taxation, like it's Econ 101. Um, and I don't know, it, it feels like the author is doing pedagogical kind of work, like trying to educate the reader. It would, I mean, look, appreciate it as well, but um, it just means that there's a lot of it in the end. Um, that does bring us to like one of the other big parts of this, the, the climate refugees, because like, there's some chapters that uh, take a first-person perspective of people either fleeing um, collapsing regimes or stuck in camps in, you know, near Zurich or whatever. Um, they've been there for six years, this kind of shit. Um, that's a huge kind of part of this that like simultaneously, it's again, this split sort of thing where it's like simultaneously very central to the plot and also like doesn't seem to affect that much either. You know, like life in Zurich just goes on as, as it always does. Um, yeah. I mean, the thing is that, so it's about it's an important topic because you know I remember back in around like 2005 when it like really hit me like what the reality of climate change meant for just sort of genocide and mass death and and like the injustice of everything that was coming you know, it's really that core of like, uh, you know, massive group of people, according to the accident of their place of their birth, are being subjected to a genocidal system. And KSR trying to present some kind of scenario where these people get a kind of justice, right? That, that they are they go through the refugee process and it is hard and is alienating and is isolating and it's not the best. But in the end, they do get the border system breaks down and they do have the freedom to live somewhere where they can exist in a healthy and free manner. Um, and sort of just underscoring the fact that like, you know, borders as we see them today are instruments of genocide and justice means an abolishment of that system. 
and I think it's probably a point that KSR sort of came into with an emotional connection to and tried to like, you know, present any kind of scenario that isn't the one that is most, that is easiest to anticipate, which is just that a large fraction of humanity is massacred through climate change and the border measures that are taken to protect the global north from the equatorial regions of the world. Um, the difficulty is that these are not these people in the refugee camps in Switzerland don't really have a lot of agency. So there is a there is a sort of a story of their social integration into Swiss society, but there is not really a story of how we get to the abolishment of borders, how we get to that justice. It's just something that is like dispensed from on high to them as they go through this integration process. Yeah, like that, that. I think that's part of what makes it feel implausible. So, like, I mean, I think the the result that he's going for is is laudable, right? Like, I mean, okay, it's it's good that these people survive and don't get fucking massacred. That's 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 wonderful. It's good that the border system is abolished. Two thumbs up for all of that. What's weird is that, like, you know, they get reintegrated after twenty six years of internment, which is where he's trying to hit that like this is realistic side of things, right? Yeah, right? But, like, by what fucking logic would that kind of carceral system that imprisons people for, for, de for decades and allows generations to be born and die in concentration camps, by what logic would that system finally decide, you know what, fuck it, let's fold this whole thing, you know? Like, I, it, in, in my sort of imagining, like, as, as this problem becomes more intense, like, the um, migrations of peoples and, like, that's that's where like the border regime collapses because nation states simply collapse as like the, a logical and coherent unit of organization. Like that's not it's not the thing. Like I, I think the, the thing that's in the book where all those things happen and yet somehow the nation state prevails. That the state is eternal somehow just seems absolutely bizarre. And like how the the, the like. And again, like you know, Switzerland is still just Switzerland at the end of the day. Like after after all this gigantic transformation of the world it's still you know it's it's still the same old switzerland somehow and i find that extremely implausible that like you know firstly that like such colossal volumes of people could simply be Im imprisoned without like revolting and like doing a, a haitian revolution and slaughtering their fucking guards you know uh, for that length of time and that that couldn't possibly have any fucking effect on society at all you know bizarre stuff because like we're, we're told on one hand that yeah the only the only like point that is addressed there you know is that these these people the the um refugees have guns pointed at them so obviously they're not going to act they're not they're not an agent um, in one of those like Socratic dialogue sections between the the idealist and the cynic, right? Um, that the cynic is just like, well, they've got guns pointed at them. What can you expect them to do? They're not going to change history. The only thing that can change history is the rule of law and legislation. Th that's the ultimate message, right? Is that like it? It all comes. It's a it's a Schmidtian kind of fucking perspective. Rule of law, legislation, tax policy. Those are the three fucking pillars on which everything stands. It's fucking strange. <laughs> <laughs> Deeply strange. 
Yeah, it it is. It is. It, it, it because the message is that both that that is the case and also that it's not the case, but you're going to kind of take away from the book whichever one meshes with you best. So it's the case that you know this is dedicated to Frederick Jameson, written by a Marxist, uh, you know, includes this sort of like you know, all these quotes from Trotsky and other Marxists, et cetera, et cetera, but also is Barack Obama's 2020, uh, one of his books of the year. Right. And, and is, you know, reviewed positively in the New York review of books and, and so on and so on. Right. Like it is, it is both, um, it is embraced uh, across the political spectrum because people see different things in it. Um, and whether that is a virtue of the book or not, um, I feel like it's, I, I would say it is less on the side of being a virtue of the book. Like, I think it is, it is a problem with the book, even though we have run into this before, you know, with like something like the player of games where, like, you know, uh, Ian Banks couldn't be any more obvious about his message of like, you know, just gleefully blowing the shit out of the capitalists and the misogynists. And then somehow, uh, you know, Elon Musk thinks these books are brilliant, right? Like, like that strange audience reception uh, dimension is something you can't entirely blame the author for because you can be as as blunt as you like and people sometimes just aren't going to read it because they find some framing or aesthetic device in your book that meshes with their worldview. Um, but I just feel like KSR's sort of this, this you know, what he calls this uh, polyvocal uh, approach to writing um, and, and, and kind of... Um, slippery or evasive approach to describing like his political, like what he thinks is right in this scenario. Um, I don't know how much good it actually does. Um, Yeah. yeah. It's it. it, it, Yeah. I agree with all that. It's, it's like being in, there's so much funhouse mirror stuff going on here and so much smokescreen that it's really hard to tell. Like is is it um yeah like what what he throws his voice so much it's it's almost like how you can't do satire anymore because it's just impossible to tell what the real thing is and similarly like you can't do you can't do this polyvocal thing because you can't tell which voice is is really the one speaking um, and if we're trying to be as generous as possible I think it's a it is quite an achievement to be able to make a kind of bestseller out of something that has some seriously radical elements in it. And seemingly slip it past the libs, like a Metal Gear Solid thing where you're in the little fucking cardboard box and you just sneak around. <laughs> that's, that's laudable. Well, and I, I, the other element to this is I wonder how much this is one of those books that people buy and then don't read. Or people only read the first section about the, the, um, the heat wave and then they drop it. Because a lot of my colleagues or folks I've talked to about the book, they've said like, oh, yeah, I read the opening, but I didn't finish the book. Mm-hmm. 
it's too much book to read. It's way too big, you know? It's an intimidating book. So I wonder how much of it really even got to the audience except for that first part, in which case, you know what? All power to KSR, because if you want a harrowing account of what wet bulb temperatures look like, you're not going to find a much better one than that. Um, it is really powerful. And if that's something that people got and it made them think, you know, a little bit seriously about the situation and sort of broke through that um, veil of double think of, 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 um, of compartmentalization that we employ in order to be able to live in this situation. Um, I think that's, that's quite an accomplishment. Um, so you never know how these, how the, the actual effects of these books play out when <laughs> the audience engagement with them could actually just be a fraction of the book. And if you evaluate on it, it on its merits as a whole piece of art, then maybe it's not actually relevant to the social reception of it, right? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I also kind of think that, like, um, because uh, if what he's really getting at is that the ministry is just a kind of weird bow on top of a very weird cake that's that's making itself from below, that he might be hiding his light under a bushel a little bit because the ministry stuff by volume is most of the book and it's hiding... It's hiding. It's hiding the interesting stuff. Like, like, like you said, just tell me the story about that fucking revolution. You know what I mean? Um, just that—that's th that's, if that's the meat of what he's trying to get at. Then I don't know. Maybe put more of that on the front and less of the weird, the West Wing stuff. Because then you you can't really blame the West Wing fans for getting quote misled uh, end quote by this if quite a fucking chunk of it is the West Wing, right? Yeah, it's. It, it it's like in film, like the rhetoric of the cinematography, right? The way you shoot the film has its own message, right? The medium is the message. And 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 by putting these technocrats as the perspective characters for most of the book, that has its own rhetoric. Um that is sort of unavoidable. Um yeah. The um, I guess um, also to touch on a maybe point from earlier like that, like if only if people are only reading the first chapter, like maybe write a book that just is the jackpot. Like just tell me everything that fucking went wrong and all the horrible shit that happened. Have have it scare the shit out of me, and have that animate me into action. You know, that that might be an even better book. You know. Um, well, I mean, I I appreciate the 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 pro, like the the effort to like, you know, respond to that Jameson quote to, to try to imagine something other than the end of the world combined with the continuation of capitalism. And I appreciate the, you know, um, the way in which KSR presents the horror of climate change and really does try to, link that to a utopian scenario, right? Like there is an effort there that is serious in a way that a lot of future scenarios work about climate is not. Um, um, 
I don't think the end results are without flaws, obviously, as we've spent a lot of time panning this book. (laughs) We have. I don't think it is without merit to take this approach, and it is a very hard thing to do. And, you know, he gave it a shot, A for effort. It's, It's just that... Um, like what I'm trying to say is I don't think providing the dystopia of the jackpot in a sort of Cormac McCarthy kind of grim grimness is the only way forward with this stuff. And that utopia absolutely has a role because it's, it's, um, it is empowering to see utopian scenarios that are not simply pie in the sky or um, in massive denial, right? Like say the, the utopian scenarios that are presented by like uh, greenwashing materials, right? Like, oh, we just find a technical fix and then it fixes everything. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Everything's all good. We're looking to the future. Capitalism cares about you, cares about the planet, blah, blah, blah. Like all of that stuff is really just fuck it, like is terrible. It's depressing. It's disempowering. It's good to have an alternative to that. You know, it's just that he kind of gets halfway there, but doesn't do it doesn't stick because it's the core actors in this scenario are not given the perspective and um there's maybe more um there's more attention put to getting ideas on the page than there is producing a sort of um coherent account of how this all gels together into a different society yeah right like i think i think that's where i'm I'm ultimately i i agree with all everything that's been said there um i think my my disappointment is like and this I kind of mean this as more praise than criticism, but I, I wish it was the book I wanted to be. You know what I mean? Like it's yes. it, it starts out on the right track, and it's a disappointment that it doesn't end up where I want it to be. Like I, I want it to end up with a more coherent story of how this transformation happens. I want the transformation itself, or like I want the end result to be more revolutionary than it actually ends up seeming. Like again, we're we're kind of told we're told it's the end of capitalism, and yet like all of the hallmarks of capitalism are still there at the end, ultimately. And it's kind of it's. I, I, I want that to be otherwise. I just, I wanted to stick the landing on those aspects. I, I want, you know, I want a version of this book in which uh, gender liberation is actually seriously addressed. You know, it's like, I, I like where it starts and where it starts to go. It's just that, like, in terms of plausibility and the kind of world that it creates, it's a little bit disappointing. But, like, th- that disappointment is inviting. Like, rewrite it again rewrite it again just just do it the way i want it you know (laughs) um and then it'll be perfect you know (laughs) yeah and i mean i i think i you know i want to go on to look at more books by different authors um that are kind of like utopian scenarios because we've seen banks right which is, you know, really disconnected from our present moment, but it's fucking awesome in its own way, right? Um, and then, um, you know, we've seen what uh, 
the sort of like grim post dystopia we get out of uh, Gibson, right? We've seen what that's like. We've seen what KSR brings to this. Um, and then, you know, I, I want to like, you know, go on and, and read some other books on the show uh, that, that present alternate scenarios. And, you know, I, I guess one of my biggest disappointments with this book is that like it does bring up the red plenty stuff, but doesn't really seem to understand or engage with it in a, in a very interesting way. So I guess, I don't know, maybe we need to write our own utopia maybe, <laughs> about, <yeah>. about that. <laughs> because, um, uh, yeah, it's not, it's not really very serious about it. Is it like, it doesn't, doesn't really capture the cybernetics because the, we don't see how things cohere very well. It doesn't really capture uh, what's actually liberatory about um, a cybernetic planning system of that sort or how it would change everyday life. Um, it just kind of is like, oh, yeah, and this is like another thing you could do to tinker with the apparatus of political economy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean, where, where it ends up, like, um, you know, towards the end of the book, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere starts coming down and they're kind of able to semi-declare victory on the whole climate crisis thing, which is, um, for all the flaws in the book, like, getting to that end was was quite gratifying, you know, it's like, oh no, that's, that's nice, you know, turn to corner. Yeah, no, that's you know? very true, is like, just that notion of, like, it's not exactly that we have this situation under control, but like all the key indicators are going in the right direction um, is, you know, there is something deeply um, I mean, hopeful, but also like, you know, that sort of feeling of like, do I dare to allow myself to imagine such a world? You know, that is it is really utopian um, that, like you know, the sort of rationality prevailed over the rational rationality of capital um, and that, you know, it's it is different from our situation where all the indicators are bad, um, which is just, you know, an unrelenting newsfeed of like. You know, indicators are bad, indicators are bad, indicators are bad, indicators are bad. Like, there's always more research being done. There's always new updates. But it's never really anything very good. Um, even if there are some highlights to see, like, it's it's still like, shit, like, the the trends are all going in the wrong direction. Um, yeah. And, and just just in terms of pure fantasy, it's like, you know, put, being on that page and, and being like, oh, wow, you know, uh, parts per million went. 20, 20 points down or whatever over the course of a year. It's like, oh, yeah, I mean, I, that sounds good. It's like for, for all the flaws of like, um, we've been, we've been carping about like how kind of implausible so much of this is. It's like, but it, it's still easy to get sucked into that little scenario in that page and be like, wow, Jesus, that would feel good. You know, you, you get the little dopamine squirt from, from that. And it's, it's quite good. Yeah. I think it, as, as bad as the, the feminism stuff is like, I think that there are aspects of that chapter that are actually impactful and compelling. Um, and, and it is very looking backward, right? Like, you know, looking backward, Bellamy's looking backward is kind of mentioned in the same voice. 
as this book and 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 there is a looking backward there uh it's just we get the run up to the looking backward as well right like <laughs> it's mary looking back on her career um yeah and it, and it, yeah it's kind of wistful it's kind of complicated it's got that big blind spot but there is a kind of um resonance to it that i do respect yeah absolutely um yeah, I mean, do we have anything else to say? I think we've probably covered everything we've got, but um, um, yeah, I mean, I I think another thing I just say about this book is that um, it's kind of on both sides about um, direct action and propaganda of the deed, where you know, in KSR KSR interviews, to sort of say said like I don't like you know, eco-terrorism, I don't like violence of this kind, but it's very foreseeable that would happen. And yet in the story, it's also portrayed as like quite effective. (laughs) Uh, That is a pretty radical choice to make, I think, in terms of making, like portraying an account of the future, right? Like when... The hegemony of the sort of um, post-Gandhi, post-civil rights, uh, peaceful political movement um, action is so strong. Um, and, and you know, all of that stuff was so discredited after the 70s and 80s, um, 60s, 70s and 80s, but really the 70s and 80s, I would say. Um, it is interesting that he decided to take that that choice um and i i don't know i feel like it was kind of freeing intellectually even if i don't necessarily agree with the direction it goes right like is it really that easy to pull off assassinations and it have um that kind of success like obviously they're abetted by the ministry for the future black art black ops right um is it like you know could you shut down the world economy logistics through um eco-terrorism through propaganda of the deed and have that be like a, a, like, like, you know, just a big stop what you're doing. Stop right the fuck. Now you need to change. Um, is that plausible? I'm not really sure. Um, but it is definitely a dimension of the book that is unusual in discussing these kinds of future scenarios. I think, because the, the 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 violence is almost always portrayed in an exclusively negative way as like, you know, society is spiraling, spiraling out of control and you have like warlordism and, um, you know, just mass widespread violence and chaos um, that is indicative of societal collapse. Um that's the typical presentation of violence in these futures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, 
I think, like, on, the, on that point of, like, the plausibility, um, there's a really interesting episode of Fight Like an Animal where Arnold Schroeder kind of goes into this, like, kind of looking at the, you know, the, the notions in the kind of, um, yeah, these the, these eco-terrorist sort of notions of, like, there's just a couple of nodes in the system and you just have to hit them hard enough and it'll take the whole system down. But then he looks at, like, the actual evidence of, like, when, you know, oil processing plants get hit by... Um, Kashmiri drones or whatever and, 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 and get blown up. And then within a couple of days, they're actually back in, in operation. And like, you know, that the looking at oil prices in response to these kinds of things. And like, it, it turns out the system is more robust than that. But the, the examples that are in the book are interesting in that they're very broad based, that like, it's a broad attack at the entire beef industry in a way that you can't pin down precisely what has been attacked where. Yeah, or the shipping industry, or the uh, um, air, uh, aeronautics and uh, air travel industry, yeah, aviation. And that's probably the difference that makes the difference, right? Is that it's a it's a different if if the things presented in the books are in the book are plausible, that's maybe why they're plausible in contrast to the kind of things that are talked about in that episode of Fight Like an Animal, right? Where the notion that you just have to blow up one pipeline and the whole thing will crash down, man, you know, that turns out to be a pipe dream. Um, but if you could plausibly threaten all pipelines everywhere in a ran in a sort of random way that nobody could pin you down over, yeah, maybe that would work, you know? Yeah. And I mean, it's like, if you look at sort of, okay, what would be like the Marxist response to this, right? Like it, you know, sort of Marxism being fairly anti-propaganda of the deed for much of its history, although certainly not exclusively so. Um, and, you know, it'd be like, well, why don't you just have like mass strikes that shut down all the ports? Right. Um, why don't the airline workers just go on strike? Um, they were already put out, they were already put out of work for like the entire pandemic and the labor shortage that is exists in the aviation industry right now is already crippling. You know, why isn't that workers' power just come to bear? And like, why does it need to be the destruction of these vehicles um, as opposed to simply shutting them down and like scrapping them or uh, retrofitting them? Right. Right. Because like the um, there's a sort of Boydian virtue in the in the what the children of Cali are doing there and like trying to cripple and discoordinate, cripple and discoordinate enemy systems. But like d doing so through strike action or you know human coordination would be just as plausible or maybe even more plausible as a way of actually crushing or crippling and discoordinating those systems well it just seems the coordination part is like the sticking point right because like you know the last time i can think about a strike being effective in that way was when the U.S. government shutdown happened a number of years ago, and the airline workers shut down the airports and forced the government back into session, right? Like, and like basically said, we're striking until you start doing the government again. And, and, and I, I, like, you know, all this obstructionism and all this bullshit, it's got to end right now. And it did end right after that. But it's very rare. Like, I've never seen it be effective at a systemic level, you know, except to the way that, like, you know, right now the aviation industry has, like, a massive, massive 
uh, worker shortage, but that's just a product of the shutdowns. Like it's a it's a product of state action and the way that the aviation industry decided to uh, address that crisis rather than being a planned strategic outcome of the workers movement. Right. No. Right. Yeah. You would you would need sort of. Uh, you'd need you'd need a workers' movement. You'd, you'd need like big coordinating institutions to kind of um, coordinate and manage those sorts of things and direct them towards common ends. It's just like yeah, it's it's um, it's hard to imagine, um, especially in the book where like um, it, it's. I think it's notable that every, every a lot of things in the book, except for the things that that happen at the very highest level. Um, everything else is very discoordinated and like diffuse, right? Like it's this diffuse eco-terrorism, it's diffuse market incentives. There's no, there's, there's no human coordination or like um, uh, collective activity at any level below that of the ministry. The, the only collective human agents are the UN and the central banks. Yeah, that we actually see in sort of action in the book as opposed to after the fact reporting. And then I guess the other thing is like, how do we feel about the plausibility of this scenario now that we've been through COVID, right? Because we had a massive system shutdown and it changed nothing, right? So it, it, it I, I think that the, the, the issue is that you had the shutdown without the political demands, the shutdown without the mass movement without the coordination it was just a shutdown with no agenda it was just a matter of necessity right yeah i think the covid thing also makes the um the kind of coordination that happens at the state level in the book makes that look fucking impossible as well you know um you know um i think covid's a really rough shock to the system and a shock to a lot of our assumptions about politics and social systems that we're, we're still kind of parsing, we're still sorting through that. Um, it, it highlighted the, I think we've probably been over this a couple of times, but like COVID highlighted the necessity of collective action and like social coordination, but it didn't seem to throw a spotlight on any of the actual means by which that would happen. The, the, the means and mechanisms seem to be very absent and threadbare, even if the necessity is very clear. Um, so the, the, the notion that like a, a department of the UN would actually be able to do any of this kind of shit, that seems fantastical now <laughs> after, um, after COVID. <laughs> well, like, yes and no. I mean, I think the thing is that something like the carbon coin is a fiscal policy thing that could be implemented, like at a very high level. And, you know, essentially the, okay, the, the part of it that is implausible is the verification and enforcement side, not the fact that this thing could be passed by a coalition of central banks, because it could. It's just how would you ever make that system work in a way that wasn't just getting gamed, right? Yeah, like it, it, it was some recent episode we've been we've talking about this, the like where. I can't remember which one it was, but like the, the notion that like the, the state is this wonderland of agency and force that like if you if you just have control of the state, anything's fucking possible. Um, 
And that, that seems much, much less plausible these days when... Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like the the Labour government here in New Zealand um, is on its way out, uh, presumably, uh, come next election. Um, and they had, you know, such a strong landslide win coming in and just kind of found ways to be useless. You know, like they they... I don't know if they've actually like really accomplished anything in their tournament tournament government. They just kind of existed and like there wasn't really sort of any sense of like a strategy to take control of the state and achieve some aims with that. It was just kind of like, oh, and now we will govern and respond to crises and kind of like, you know, steady as she goes. And the things that they tried to do in terms of social policy, they either defeated with their own policies or just failed at achieving. Um, and it's, it's, it's like, you know, this was with a landslide victory. Right. And there's a lot of examples like that of like, yeah, you take state power, you know, sort of in the most nominal sense possible by winning an election. And then you kind of just don't achieve anything with it. And like, you know, to be fair to them, I don't think they had a strong mandate for like any kind of revolutionary change. They were kind of elected as the state of course party coming you know through the pandemic and stuff you know just you know you know steady as she goes like keep things under control blah 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 but like as far as like leftists trying to affect some kind of social change it was definitely not a success um and yeah you you see a lot of that um If you'd like to support the show and get access to our community discord, you can go to patreon.com slash generalintellectunit and give us a couple of bucks a month. Your support is very much appreciated. This show is part of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast network and research collective. Go to emancipation.network and check out our sister shows, such as From Alpha to Omega, Swampside Chats, Jumpsuit Utopia, and Mortal Science. They're excellent shows and excellent folks. As always, thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this show, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Bye.